0: Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. As long as we've wondered what others think and how we might predict the outcomes of the strange workings of democracy, we have been fascinated by polling and trying to measure the pulse of public opinion. It's a fascination that rivals our anticipation of the final tally on election night. Polls are our crystal ball, glimpses into the collective psyche, and we hang on their every percentage point. When polls mirror our worldview, they're lauded as harbingers of truth. But let them dare to challenge our preconceptions, and suddenly they're diminished as flawed oracles of the public will. Consider the world of baseball, where batting 300 makes you a legend, or Wall Street, where it's the rule that yesterday's wins offer no guarantee to tomorrow's fortunes. The pundits on our screens are rarely held to account for their errant forecasts their past predictions simply fading into the ether. Yet the polling industry is often castigated for every perceived misstep, bearing the brunt of blame for swaying the very tides they seek to measure. It brings to mind Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that the act of measurement inevitably alters the state of what's being measured. As we edge closer to the 2024 horizon, the alchemy of polling is once again at the forefront of our national discourse. Just last week, we witnessed how mere numbers could jolt the politically educated in the erudite into a spiral of doubt, challenging the very bedrock of their convictions. That's the canvas of our conversation today with my guest, Scott Keeter, a longtime expert in the realm of survey science. Scott serves as a senior research advisor at Pew Research Center, where his expertise shapes the methodology behind their influential studies. His scholarly contributions include co-authoring seminal works such as What Americans Know About Politics and Why It Matters. His career spans teaching at prestigious institutions and directing survey research centers. He brings a wealth of knowledge on the intricate dance of polling and public sentiment. It is my pleasure to welcome Scott Keeter here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Scott, thanks so very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Jeff. It's great to be with you.
0: Well, it is great to have you. There is this ongoing debate that always seems to go on with respect to polling about the degree to which it's either an art or a science. But one thing is pretty clear in all the the research and all the work that gets done is that it is always evolving, that it's always changing, that that the methodology that might have been used in 2016 – or 2020 is different from the methodology today, that this is a very alive process.
1: Well, you you're, you really hit the nail on the head. Uh, and I think this is one of the great things about the profession is that um, as the society has changed, as people's lifestyles have, have evolved, the polling community has had to evolve with them. We used to knock on people's front doors, uh, to get our uh, samples and our interviews. Uh, and that worked well for many decades, but then it began to not work because people were much less welcoming of people sort of coming up and knocking unannounced. Uh, but about the same time, telephones were uh, pretty much universal throughout the country. And so we we, adot- we adapted a methodology to the telephone and now people don't want to answer their telephones, and so we've had to evolve into some some other approaches. So if you look over even just the past twenty years of polling, you see a huge change in the modes by which uh, people are contacted and interviewed, and the way in which our samples are drawn. But that's a sign, you know. I think of resilience and health in the professions. We're we're trying to find ways to continue to accurately portray the voice of the people.
0: Does it take, though, mistakes, errors, elections that don't go well, 2016 perhaps being the penultimate example, does it take that in order for the industry to move on to to make these changes, or are some of them made organically as the process moves forward?
1: It's a a bit of both. Um, The kinds of things that we have seen... um, over the past 20 years, particularly the rise of online surveys, web surveys, where most interviewing is actually uh, taking place now for, for public opinion polls and for market research. That's something that began even before we were seeing problems with the polls in the last two presidential elections. And that was mainly a, a, a function of cost, that it was much cheaper to have people take the surveys themselves, that is sort of self-administration, as opposed to having an interviewer that one has to pay uh, to call up people and and to conduct an interview. And so the field was already making the kinds of changes that would be necessary, but some of those changes actually probably uh, hurt us in terms of accuracy. And it did take um, the failed polling in the 2016 election and in the 2020 election to, I think, convince some people in the industry that um, they needed to address those problems and find ways to make the methodologies that they were currently using more robust and able to to deal with uh, the realities of what public opinion has become.
0: How monolithic have these problems been across the board within the industry? Are there a certain set of problems that that everybody's dealing with? Or have individual groups found different sets of problems that then other companies and other groups have had to sit up and take notice about?
1: The the phenomena that are are challenging us uh, affect everybody who's trying to conduct uh, polls now. And the main one is, is what's called non-response, and it's just the it's just the the uh, decline in the share of people who are ready and willing to be interviewed. Uh, this has a has a multitude of causes. Uh, a lot of it is just changes in lifestyle, but some of it is is related to things that don't have anything to do with politics or polling, such as people's uh, suspicions about. Uh, identity theft. And so when someone that they don't know contacts them and wants to ask them questions, uh, much more so today than uh, 20 or 40 years ago, people are suspicious. Why are you asking me that? What do you want? What do you want from me? And, you know, we hear enough about um, data breaches to um, legitimately wonder, you know, is this something I want to do? Do I want to share my candid views or my demographics with uh with with this person that I don't know who's just reached out to me over the telephone or in an email or in some other fashion. and so the 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 evol- the evolving relationship of the public to institutions, the decline in trust in institutions, those are all felt downstream in the polling uh, world's uh, response rates the the percentage of the people that we try to, contact and interview who actually give us uh, who, who cooperate with us and give us an interview and so uh, the long story uh, answer to your short question is that this is this is a, this is widespread throughout the whole polling sector and it's largely driven uh, by the problems of, of uh, non-response non-cooperation which themselves have um, you know a lot of different causes, many of which we can we can fully understand and, you know, kind of embrace ourselves.
0: And it seems that that carries within it something that, that the polling industry has to adjust for, in that it has an internal bias of people that are trusting enough or willing enough to participate with somebody taking the poll, whether it's self-directed or whether it's by an individual.
1: It, it's not a good problem to have, but it, it is certainly uh, something that we have to be aware of, and I'll give you a a couple of ways in which we know we have a problem and a couple of ways in which maybe we don't have as much of a problem as we thought. So first of all, one thing that happens when cooperation levels go down uh, is that we see our samples becoming more and more uh, made up of people who are well educated, um, who are older, and uh, who are more politically and civically engaged, people who are willing to volunteer their time to to, help others who donate money, uh, who give blood uh, and who vote. And so our samples don't accurately reflect the public on some of those kinds of characteristics because those characteristics are associated with people's willingness to take part in the survey. This is something that we know. We can measure this. We can compare it with uh, government surveys that have very high response rates and are are accurate. We can look at voter turnout aggregate statistics and know that we have too many voters in our samples. And we can fix those things, but using statistical weighting, because we know what those numbers really should be. But the the one that you put your finger on, which is trust, is a more difficult thing to, um, to get at because there aren't any really good uh, national uh, sort of gold standard numbers of what chair people trust institutions or other people. It makes sense that people who are less trusting are less likely to participate in the polls. And indeed, that's one of the main theories for why polling underestimated Donald Trump's support um, because he was making an explicit appeal to people who don't trust institutions. But I think it's also good to step back and ask ourselves how big of a problem is this? did we did we underestimate Trump by 20 points or by three or four points? And the answer is it was the latter. So we have we may have a problem with uh, reaching people who are less trusting, but it can't be a gigantic problem because our our errors, as you know, as serious as they are in a society in which the public is divided pretty evenly between the parties, um, that has big consequences for the accuracy of your forecast. But we're not like missing the boat on the trends in people's trust in institutions. It isn't that we have our samples filled with people who are, you know. Uh, you know, guile, guileless and love, you know, love institutions. That's certainly not the case, as we can tell from you know just the questions that we ask people.
0: And to what extent is it different when you do polling around specific issues versus polling about individual candidates, for example?
1: Um, you know, polling has has long enjoyed the fact that it it has been pretty accurate in elections. Uh, when we were still doing so-called horse race polling—that is, trying to forecast what was going to happen in the election—we had uh, we had almost uh, perfect results in 2004. We had almost perfect results in 2008, and again in 2012. And you know, we were very quick to say, "Hey, you know, we got we got the election right. Therefore, you can trust us." When we tell you what share people support the legalization of marijuana or who oppose uh, the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Now that we're having a little trouble with elections, um, you know, people rightfully would want to know, well, can I believe your issue polls as well? And again, I would point to this question of, well, how big are the polling errors that we're seeing in elections And does that actually translate into one-to-one errors in our issue polling? And we've done some analyses of this. And for one thing, um, the the, the errors in the election polling are not that large. Even three or four points is a big enough error to make your poll wrong in predicting the election. But it's not going to make a big difference in whether you think the public is very supportive of more integration or very very opposed to more immigration or is supportive of legalizing marijuana or opposed to it. But the fact is there's also not a one-to-one relationship between support for a candidate um, and how people feel on issues. Uh, I noticed um, exit polls in, uh, in the Ohio elections showed that uh, you know maybe 20% of the people who were Donald Trump supporters in the last election Uh, supported the codification of abortion rights in the in the Ohio Constitution. So uh, those things aren't exactly the same. So even the errors that we see in election polling don't necessarily translate into issue errors as well.
0: Because of all of this, has the polling process become more complex, certainly more complex in trying to find those balances you're talking about, and it's not as simple anymore as making phone calls or or knocking on doors. Has it therefore become prohibitively expensive in a way that somehow impacts on the polling process?
1: The the answer is yes, Um, but it it also points to one of the issues that we in the polling profession are, are dealing with. Polling has become much more difficult and more expensive, again, largely because of the fact that non-response is is so difficult. It just takes a lot more effort to get get a a good sample. But it's also paradoxically become much cheaper. Um, And the barriers to entry to the profession have fallen very substantially because people can, um, can conduct polls using what are called opt-in non-probability samples online that are incredibly cheap. Uh, they also have very large errors associated with them. And um, they're you know really not per- particularly good for the kind of work that we do here, which is to try to represent the public's views with a, with a high degree of precision or to forecast the outcome of elections. They may be perfectly OK for doing certain kinds of market research or for testing the feasibility of ideas. But what's happened is that, that probably half of the polls that you read about in the run up to an election are coming from those opt-in online non-probability samples that are cheap and plentiful. Um, and that is those polls are getting stuck in people's minds as representative of what the polling profession is doing. Whereas over on the other side, there are major news organizations and places like Pew Research Center that devote tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars per poll to overcoming uh, the limitations that we're facing in terms of reaching people and persuading them, and then doing the complicated statistical work to make our samples as faithful a model of the population as we can Um, And so, you know, I think both of those things are happening at the same time. Doing good polling is becoming prohibitively expensive for a lot of uh, people and organizations. And doing bad polling is easier than it's ever been. And it uh, adds to potential public confusion about whether polling is dead or dying or worthless or is in fact still surviving. I mean, one would say, look at some of the good polls that were conducted in the 2023 elections. Um, Those accurately forecast that the Kentucky governor, Democratic governor would be reelected, that the Republicans probably would not get unified control in Virginia, that the abortion referendum Constitutional referendum in Ohio would uh, would pass. Um, the polling did a very good job of pointing us in that direction, but those were mostly uh, polls done at high expense and with good samples.
0: Is polling easier to do outside of an election per se? Is it easier to get people to respond and to get samples outside of the crucible of an election campaign? If you're doing, for example, issue polling in off election time,
1: I think there's a. I think there's a something to that. Um, in part, because if you live in a um, battleground state in uh, a presidential election year, you, and you have a telephone, if you have a landline, you just get uh, inundated with unsolicited calls, uh, many of which are not polls but are efforts to persuade you um, to give money or, or something like that and so you're competing if you're trying to do a poll uh, through a method like telephone you're tr- you're competing with with uh, that cacophony of voices uh and 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 contacts but that's also balanced a little bit by the fact that during elections people are a little more politically engaged and when they are they may be more likely to cooperate. With your polls, um, and so I think there's no there's no solid evidence that it's easier to do polling outside of election times, but there's a way in which, particularly for people who live in places that are having very active campaigns, it it's probably true
0: you mentioned telephones a minute ago how much more difficult is it now because basically the landline is almost extinct that it is all cell phones now how much more difficult does that make the phone part of the process
1: we were we were um a telephone shop for a long time through much much of uh, really since since the 1990s um and we lived through the, the transformation to cell phones. We were calling 80 or 90% of our sample was cell phones um, at the time that we stopped doing telephone surveys, but we did stop a couple of years ago. Uh, we tapered off from them and we don't do them uh, basically anymore at all. And not very many organizations in the country do phone surveys anymore or do phone surveys alone. They may do a combination of phone and online or something like, like that. Or they may use phone in conjunction with a different sampling method. But it's just about impossible to get good samples with phones if you're, un- unless you're willing to put in a tremendous amount of, of effort. And, and it's still it, there are organizations still doing it. The New York Times uh, does it with their, their polling with Siena College. Um, and they have a very good track record. So it's feasible, but it's it, it's extremely difficult. Um, you know, most organizations are now using other methods. You know, like we, we use what's called a probability-based panel, where we have recruited people using mail surveys to join our panel and then take regular surveys with us. Um, other organizations uh, are doing online surveys only um, with either with probability samples or uh, with just opt-in samples where people can join their members of frequent flyer clubs or they do other, other ways of getting recruited into these things. But there's just not that much fun work being done anymore.
0: One of the biggest challenges as we look to, to 2024 in terms of accuracy, what are the things that that your organization, the Pew, and that, that as far as you know, other polling organizations are most concerned about or afraid of going into this next cycle? There,
1: there was a hope after 2016 that um, pollsters had figured out what the, what the problem was. Um, in a nutshell, uh, we know that there's been a there's been a, a steady kind of realignment underneath the surface of the of the American party system, with more and more less educated working class people uh, affiliating with the Republican Party. And the argument was made that some of the errors in the polls in 2016 was a function of the polling not accurately reflecting the educational composition of the electorate. Um, And by and in so doing, uh, underestimated Trump's support. So those problems were fixed in in 2020 for most pollsters. But the polls again had that problem. They underestimated uh, Trump's level of support and of other Republican candidates' levels of support. Postmortems from the 2020 election found that there appears to be less... uh, willingness on the part of trump supporters and republicans to take part in polls now than in the past um, this is a this is a concern that i've heard as long as i've been in the business 40 years um and it's not really been true in the past it's um it, it's something of a myth but it does appear to be uh true today and we're we're talking here again about not a huge difference maybe a a couple or three percentage points but that can make a difference in the accuracy of your outcome and so the question is if republicans whether it's because of trust or lifestyle circumstances or whatever are less uh, willing or less likely to be contacted to take part in polls then it raises the danger of a systematic bias i'm not willing to throw in the towel on this yet it's definitely something that we will uh, monitor and everybody who's doing public polling and and private polling for sure in 2024 will will be monitoring but the polls in 2022 um, were actually pretty good there were still some errors but by and large uh if you'd have to say was there an overall error of polling in 2022 it was probably the the uh, anticipation of the red wave that actually never uh, developed. Right. And the same was true for the 2023 off year elections, even though we're talking about a very small number of of states and places. So we're concerned about this and about the possibility of underrepresenting Republicans and Trump supporters. Um, But I don't think anybody is in a panic about it.
0: And finally, talk about the impact of the polls themselves and how the industry looks at that, because it really does involve this this impact that a poll has that impacts on the very electorate that you're polling. This has been
1: a great subject of debate in the political science world for decades. Um, And I think there's definitely uh, something to the fact that uh, polling can can have an impact on people in terms of their um, sense of who's viable in a campaign and what's, um, what's likely to happen. But there's not, there's not any good evidence for what we call bandwagon effects where people see who's leading and then decide, well, I'm gonna vote for that person. Where I think you do see some concrete evidence is during the primaries, if, if a candidate begins to lose support in the polls um, they will probably find that their fundraising dries up. And that's a that's a way in which a poll a bad a bad outcome in the polls can can really have a concrete impact on the viability of of a, of a candidate. The impact of polls on the public, uh, I think, is just m- much, much more vague. And it's harder to say that it's it's um, You know, it's something that kind of interferes with the democratic process. What I like to say is this, that polling is one manifestation of what the public thinks. Their votes are another manifestation, protests are another, letters that they write to members of Congress are another, Uh, and polls are one way in which the public can, um, can find out what it thinks, right? And it's a good one in that it is it is at least aspirationally a way to offset the biases that are associated with a lot of other ways that public opinion gets heard. People who are more verbal are able to voice their opinions in letters to the editor or uh, communications with members uh, of uh, elected officials and so forth. We attempt to give everybody the opportunity to participate. But anytime you or I or anybody wants to say, well, what does the public really think? They should look at polls as one source of evidence, a good one, we think, but only one among many. And um, I think if you consider polling from that perspective, then its role in elections is just um, like any other kind of information that you might happen to uh, be exposed to in the course of a campaign. It's just something you can factor in or not in your own thinking.
0: Scott Keeter, I thank you so very much for spending time with us here on the Who, What, Why podcast.
1: It was great talking with you, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.